A couple of days ago, when Sarah and I, we were, it was end of school, and it was time to celebrate. Sarah had finished, and um, the, the kids had been off for uh, a day, but Sarah had to go back so that she and the rest of the staff at the school could uh, finish up the year, and she came home that night, and we were going to go out for ice cream to celebrate. And our way, on our way to the ice cream shop, we passed uh, a little spot that uh, is right next to our house, which is a, a, like a gym. It's one of those CrossFit gyms. And as we were driving past, uh, my youngest, Emerson, my five-year-old, noticed that there were some kids playing basketball in the parking lot. And his response to seeing those kids playing basketball in the parking lot was, they're not supposed to be doing that. I said, well, what do you mean they're not supposed to be doing that? There's not a basketball court. They're not supposed to be playing there. They're not allowed to do that. And we said, well, how is it that you um, know what they are or are not allowed to do? And... He wanted to, us to, he said, we should call somebody. We should get them even arrested or something. And we're like, but you're not their boss. And he said, but they're not supposed to be doing that. Well, do you own the building? No. Do you know the person that owned the building? No. Well, how do you know that they don't have permission to be there to be doing that? And so we had to start talking about the reality that there are times when we need to pick up the phone and call the police. It would be one thing we said if we drove past and we saw them destroying the building or breaking windows or being damaging or something like that, but them playing basketball, and as we drove back by, we noticed there, was a bun- there were a bunch of parents around and all kinds of other stuff, so clearly they were having some kind of function. But that got me to thinking about where we are in this passage of Scripture, because even in my five-year-old, there is an innate sense of right and wrong. And as those who have been created in the image of God, who in and of himself and by his nature is truth and is the standard of what is right and what is wrong, we each and every one, as those created in his image, are created to reflect that idea of justice. And justice is a hot-button issue in the world today. It is a hot topic that you can get into some hot waters and deep waters in very quickly. But justice is essentially the outworking of the principle that Jesus shared with us and exists in the Old Testament as the second greatest commandment that God has given to us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the source, the founding principle of justice. If we would treat one another the way that we want to be treated, with respect and with patience, with kindness and compassion, with generosity, we would see a just society. And in the midst of it, when we really dig into that, I have found oftentimes, as I've shared with you before, that we underinterpret that command. Because we typically tend to, to say, when, when we want to be treated, right, I want to be treated fair. No, you don't. Don't you lie to me. Nobody wants to be treated fair. Nobody wants to be treated like they deserve. A few years back, I was coming off of the interstate at exit 11, and I grew up right there, so I spent my entire life coming to the end of that off-ramp and making a right-hand turn because there was a yield sign. Well, when I got back, and we had just moved back to town back in 2011, they put up that, that traffic light there, there, and they put up a great big sign that says, no turn on red. So you know what I did? I pulled up. It's the first time I'd done it. I didn't see it, and I was halfway out into the next lane before I saw that no turn on red and there wasn't a car in sight except for the police officer under the underpass and she pulled me over and in that moment when you get pulled over for speeding for running a red light for something like that do you want to be treated as you deserve what do you want in that moment I would love a warning 
Thank you so much. But I was guilty. And what I deserved was the ticket that I got. And we all want to be treated better than we deserve, and that is rarely how we treat one another. We treat other people fairly, and we demand to be treated unfairly. Because you see, the reality is our sin has corrupted that sense of justice inherent to our nature as image bearers of God. And when we hear Jesus say that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, what we often do in our hearts and in our minds is we redefine Jesus' definition of our neighbor to reflect those who reflect us. And we are quick to get involved wherein when we see someone who looks like us, thinks like us, votes like us, believes like us, when we think that they are being treated unfairly, we're really quick to jump in and to get angry, and to get violent, but where and when we see people who are not like us, we are slow to interact, or we choose the wrong side, because that's the more comfortable side. And in doing so, we violate the second great commandment and commit injustice. And in what is perhaps the most shocking irony in the story of humanity and the story of the universe is that the God of the universe uses the single greatest injustice ever committed by humans to provide a cure for all human injustice. The God of the universe uses the single greatest incident of human injustice to provide a cure for all human injustice. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 15 as we read the first 15 verses together this morning. Peter writes, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in this place. I pray that you would take hold of my heart and my mind and my mouth, that only the words that you would want said in this moment would be said that we might make much of Jesus. I pray that I would fade into the distance and that there wouldn't be a single one who is able to say great sermon, but only what an amazing Savior. And I pray that in this you would convict us of the ways that we have turned from the second 
greatest command, that we have failed to love one another as we would want to be loved, as they deserve to be loved, but instead how we have been Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Barabbas and the crowd. And then as we see that, Heavenly Father, may we see our need for Jesus, who was willing to suffer injustice, that we might be set free. And it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen and amen. These verses detail the grave injustice committed against Jesus Christ, Son of God and the King of the Jews. Those who should have been the arbiters of justice abandon their duty and surrender to their basest natures, and they condemn the only innocent man who has ever lived as they exchange him for a common criminal. And this passage of Scripture breaks down into two scenes. And in the first scene, we see Jesus before Pilate, and in the second scene, we see Pilate before the people. And we're going to walk through this scene, these scenes together, starting with Jesus in front of Pilate, and then we're going to kind of walk back through it and, and, and pull out some application at the end. But in the first scene, as Jesus before Pilate, what we see happen in the opening verse is that the Sanhedrin seems to come, again, come together a second time. If you'll remember from last week, we studied how the Sanhedrin after arresting Jesus, put him on trial in front of them, and they let, came to the conclusion that he was guilty of blasphemy. And so now they're getting ready to take him to Pilate, because in this society, though they had the ability to judge certain things, the Jewish people did not have the authority to actually execute an individual. That was held by the Roman governor and the government exclusively. They weren't going to let just the local magistrate run around and kill people. That was an authority that was held closely by Rome. And so Rome had that authority for capital punishment, and blasphemy didn't make that list. So they couldn't bring, the Sanhedrin couldn't bring Jesus before Pilate and accuse him of blasphemy and get the death penalty that they wanted. And so we see them, I believe, in this opening verse, coming up with a new legal strategy as they're going into a different court. And they're doing it super early because in the Roman tradition, all of the legal matters that Pilate would have overseen happened at daybreak and early because come midday, he was checking out. It was time for his nap and his lunch, and he was good to go. So if they didn't get Jesus there at the beginning of the day, they were not going to see him crucified or judged. So they get Jesus to Pilate, and they decide that the best route is to accuse Jesus of sedition, of treason, of insurrection. The, the crime that they accuse him of and set before Pilate is that he claims to be the king of the Jews. So when we come to verse 2 and Pilate says to him, it's not so much as a question as much as it is a statement with kind of a question lingering on the end of, the, of it, just like the, the Sanhedrin had asked the night before. It, it kind of should read like this. You're the king of the Jews? Because he's reading this, this, this accusation from them, and this is the charge that has been brought against you. You're the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is, in just the Greek, it's just simply, you say, period. What kind of an answer is that? Because if you remember the night before, when the chief priest came to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus boldly says, I am. 
So why does Jesus back off a little bit in this passage of Scripture in front of Pilate? Why does he seem to give this kind of vague non-answer? The reason being that Jesus is the Messiah. And the fact that the Messiah, being the Messiah, gave him the right to be the king of the Jews is only one tiny piece of what it means to be the Messiah. And so the Sanhedrin has filtered down their theology of who the Messiah is to this one little bitty corner of the theology and the understanding of the Messiah so that they can manipulate Pilate into thinking that he is some political insurrectionist. So Pilate does not understand what it means that he is the Messiah. Because the fact of the matter is, the Messiah is not merely the king of the Jews. The Messiah is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So Jesus' response is basically, you don't understand what you're asking, but in a way, yeah. You don't get the full picture here. So it's yes, but not in the way that you think it is. Yes, in a much bigger way. Not in the way that they claim. I'm not just here to cause problems for Rome. I'm here to cause problems for everybody. As I wage war, not against Rome, but the thing that is behind Rome, that is beneath Rome, that is, is raging Rome against in, of anything that is close to holiness. And this is what then causes Pilate, this vague non-answer, this causes Pilate to turn to the Sanhedrin for clarification. And what do they do? They launch straight in for all of their accusations. They're talking over to one another. They're laying out all of these accusations against Jesus, and all of them are wrong. And again, we see the power of silence. As Jesus doesn't rise to their level, or stoop to their level, I guess I should say, he just remains silent. Because in the silence, all of their accusations crash against the rock of his holiness and his righteousness and his perfection and his innocence. He doesn't have to offer any type of contradictory witness because their testimony contradicts itself. And Pilate knows it, and he knows it, and they know it, and we see that injustice on full display in what happens when Pilate goes before the people. And so that was when we go to the next scene where we realize that Pilate had this pattern, this, this, this tradition that every year at the time of the Passover celebration, which is one of the holiest days in Israel, he would commute the sentence of someone for the people. Why would he do this? To show his power. There's no real other reason, right? to keep the people in check on this emotional yo-yo roller coaster back and forth that says, hey, listen, I have the power to give someone back to you because I have the power to take them away again. He's flaunting Roman authority. He's flaunting Roman power. He's also playing a political game. It's a PR stunt. They're all happy. They're all celebrating. Let's not make them, why not make them happy with Rome by giving them somebody that we have imprisoned for some ridiculous reason, right? And so he comes to the people, and the people start calling for him to do this. And so he thinks, well, what a great way for me to weasel out of this really ridiculous situation that I'm in and stick it to the Jewish leaders at the same time because Pilate and the Jewish leaders did not get along they did not like each other Pilate was not a nice dude the the gospel writers are a little bit uh, timid in some senses to to really lay out who Pilate was but if you go read some of the Jewish history you'll find out Pilate was ruthless he hated the Jewish people 
He was cruel every chance that he could get. So he's not really necessarily in league with these guys, but he understands that Jesus it might be a threat because there's crowds that are following him. Pilate has heard what's going on with Jesus. But he also knows that this, this is just ridiculous. And so he find, figures that he's got a way to weasel his way out of this by, uh, by appealing to the people. Problem with that is, one, the people hated him because he was wicked and he was evil against him. And so when you've got somebody that you just really don't like, and that individual offers you a suggested path to move the direction, are you going to go that way? No. So Pilate is ignorant in his own power, and, and so he presents this. But not only that, he is ignorant of the hardness of the heart of the human being. The Bible tells us that the human heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? Pilate makes a mistake when he thinks that he is going to, he knows the human heart, and so he offers Jesus, and instead of standing up and ensuring that justice takes place and happens as his office required, he instead entrusts justice to the mob. That didn't work then. That doesn't work now. It won't work in the future. Period. There was this man named Barabbas, which is a really interesting name. It's a compound name. Bar means son. Abba means father. His name literally means son of the father. And he is an insurrectionist. Mark tells us right here, the reason he's in jail is because he committed murder during the insurrection. We don't know what the insurrection was, but clearly Mark's original audience knew what it was. So this is a convicted, known murderer who was a part of an uprising against Rome, and the people want him freed, and the man that they're accusing as being an insurrectionist is in front of them. Do you see the irony? Do you see how Pilate knows what's going on here? They're claiming Jesus is an insurrectionist and he needs to die. Oh, but by the way, we want this particular insurrectionist free. It's ridiculous. He knows it. They know it. You know it. I know it. And still, Pilate acquiesces to the crowd because the crowd just gets louder and more hostile. Maybe you've been around those parents that they've got that child that wants something and they want something now, right? And so when mom and dad first says no, what's the kid do? Asks louder and then gets frustrated and throws the fit and lays down and screams and yells and does this and does that until eventually the parent decides, you know what, it's just easier to give them what they want and just stop the whole thing. That's what Pilate does here. The crowd throws a giant temper tantrum, and Pilate gets a little bit afraid of what could potentially happen, and so he, he just gives them what he thinks that it is that they want. And in the end, what he does is he caves to the crowd, and just as the Sanhedrin handed Jesus over to him, he now hands Jesus over to the soldiers to crucify him. And on this day, justice does not reign, but injustice does. And in this encounter where Jesus suffers under the injustice of sin, we see some of the things that fuel injustice, not just then, but in your life and in my life and in our world today. Injustice is fueled, first and foremost, by ignorance. 
right? The Sanhedrin are able to manipulate Pilate because Pilate doesn't understand the full implications of who Jesus is as the Messiah. Pilate doesn't get it, and so the Sanhedrin manipulate his ignorance, and we see that in our world today. Thinking that we're wise, we prove ourselves to be fools. And we're quick to jump in and interact with and respond to all kinds of things because, after all, the Internet doesn't lie. Right? Facebook is far more reliable than a vetted news source. Right? And so we continue to listen and cave and we respond based on our emotions instead of based on facts. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we must be careful in how and when we respond to things in the world that's around us. Because here's the reality. How in the world do you expect someone to read your Facebook posts and page and everything else that spouts conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory? Jesus rose from the grave! We must be people who are careful to pursue truth, to speak for truth in every aspect of our lives, to love one another based on truth, and truth is found in Christ. In this very encounter, in John's gospel, Jesus has a longer interaction with Pilate, and there he says something, he makes a comment about truth, and Pilate responds, what is truth? Jesus answered that question the night before in his high priestly prayer when he asked that God would soak us in truth. Your word, he says, is truth. As people of God, we must be saturated in the truth of God that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his word. We must be rooted and grounded in our faith that we might not be shaken. We must know what Jesus Christ has commanded us. He says in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the, the, of the, the Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out what it is to be a disciple and to be built on the rock that is the commandments and the teachings and the work and the life of Jesus. We must be anchored in the truth of the gospel the eternal truths of who God is and what he expects of us. We must not settle for ignorance in the here and the now, but we must know who God is. We must know who Christ is. We must know what God expects of us. We must pass that along to one another. After all, the great commandment doesn't stop after make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Head knowledge isn't enough. Heart knowledge isn't enough. We are to be taught the commands and the expectations and the truths of Scripture that our life might reflect them. We cannot settle for ignorance. But injustice isn't just fueled by ignorance, it's also fueled by hard-heartedness. And I mean this very particularly, and you see this in verse 10 where Mark makes it clear that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate does not stand here as someone who is innocent. He stands here as one who is condemned, as knowing the right thing to do and choosing not to do it. And when you and I are in those moments where the voice of God whispers into our heart what is the right thing to do, what is the holy thing to do? What is the God-honoring thing to do? What is the Christ-exalting thing to do? What is the gospel-centric thing to do? 
when we hear that voice in our heart and we say, for whatever reason, now's not the time. Or we say, no. We're hardening our heart to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're hardening our conscience. And we will find it harder to be obedient in the future. Robbie Gallaty is a pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church just down the road on the other side of Nashville, and they are experiencing a phenomenal revival. They began praying last year that God, they would see God work in a way in their life and in their church, that they would see a thousand people saved and baptized in 12 months. God did it in five weeks. 1,200 people. And they're still experiencing the fruit of revival as their hearts and lives are centered around Jesus, not themselves, not their church identity, not their programs, their policies, or anything else. And recently, um, as Dr. Gallaty has been working his way through a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, one of the things that he said that I've kind of rephrased a little bit is the more that you say no to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the less you will know the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. As we harden our heart knowing what it is that God would expect of us. To, to take that opportunity as you're sitting at breakfast or you're sitting at lunch and the waitress comes over and God prompts you in your heart, ask her how you can pray for her. Sarah and I did that one day sitting at lunch and it was really awkward, it was really uncomfortable. We asked our waitress, how can we pray for you? And she immediately broke into tears. She said, well actually she said, you can pray for my mom. And we said, okay, how can we specifically pray for your mom? And she broke into tears. And that's when she shared with us that her mom was suffering a drug addiction and many different things, and we were able in that moment to minister to her. We would never have had that opportunity to share with her, to pray over her. At that point, it's not about Spring Creek Baptist Church. It's about someone whose heart is aching and hurting, and God put us in the position to minister to that individual. If we had said no, she would have continued on with that weight and that burden without having been ministered to. God calls us into obedience time and again in our lives, and we have to say yes. A heart in love with God, a heart centered on Jesus, is a heart that's quick to say yes when God calls us to repent, when God calls us to ask forgiveness, when God calls us to step out in obedience, when God calls us to something radically generous and amazing for his glory, to step out and to serve, no matter how uncomfortable it might be for you. We've got two gentlemen who right now in our church, two of our deacons, every Tuesday night, they're knocking on doors. Not just doors of those who visited, but doors of people who've never set foot in our church that they might know how can we pray and how can we minister. That's uncomfortable for every single one of us. That's uncomfortable for me. But where and when God calls, we are to respond, yes, and if you would like to join in them, and if the Holy Spirit is leading you to reach out and to minister within our community, they would love your help, and I encourage you to get with Brother Ross or Brother Barry that you might serve alongside of them. But the more you say no to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the less you will know the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. When injustice is fueled by ignorance, it's fueled by hard-heartedness, but I oftentimes find injustice is most fueled by fear. When we are afraid of other people, oftentimes the reason that we say no in a moment and in an instance is because we're afraid of somebody's response. I don't know about you, I don't like conflict. I'm a pastor. Most of us, we thrive and we live on people who are happy with us, right? We are people pleasers. We want to make you happy. We want to make sure that you get what you want because after all, that's why God put us here, right? No, it's not. I know that, but I wrestle with that in my heart and in my life. A fear of man is something that is ingrained in me. 
partly because I serve in a position where a lot of my leadership collateral is dependent on whether or not you will follow me. And if you don't like me, you won't follow me, right? And so I've got to love and I've got to serve. And so when there is a fear that others will be angry with us, when others will respond to us, when we're living in that environment where our mind is trapped by, well, what are other people going to think of me? If I do this, what's going to be their response? Let me tell you real quick, their response should never determine yours and your level of obedience because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. We can also be afraid of what we're going to lose. Am I going to lose my job over this? Am I going to lose my friend over this? Am I going to lose, Pilate's afraid right here, he's going to lose his position of power. Because if these people respond in an uprising, in a revolt of any kind, guess what happens to, to Pilate? He doesn't just get pulled out. He gets cut off, like real literally, okay? His job is to keep the peace. And so he's afraid of not only losing his life, he's afraid of losing his position. And this is the reality that we are facing as believers in Jesus Christ right now. We have been spoiled rotten in America, brothers and sisters. We, we, we remember, if you go back and you listen to the sermon series that we did through 1 Peter, I told you, we are not normal Christians. Normal Christians throughout history and around the world today have experienced serious persecution over and over and over as they are ministering in an environment where those who are opposed to them are hostile. And we're comfortable. And the American church is fat and happy. And God desires for us to get ready for the days that are coming as the culture is rapidly moving away from Christianity and our Christian morality that it was established in. We're at that point where we're realizing that 200 years ago, Christ, the church and America were real close with one another. And now we're at the place where we realize that we were just far enough off kilter with one another that we are miles apart and growing ever faster. And we are in a situation where we are going to be increasingly the oddballs and the voices of opposition and the voices that are shouted down and rejected. And we can sit around and we can whine and cry and gripe and complain to one another and stir ourselves up all day long, or we can see that this is the path that Jesus walked and prepare ourselves to walk it too. Because after all, didn't Jesus say, back in Mark chapter 8, I think, that if you are going to be my disciple, what must you do? Lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow after me. We can kick and scream against persecution and injustice all day long, but persecution and injustice is the foundation of our faith because that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered condemnation to secure our liberation and our hope despite the injustice. And so we can trust in him. We can move towards him as the source of our freedom, not just for, from sin, but our hope, no matter what it is that the world throws against us, no matter what opposition it is that we face, no matter how dark or violent or turbulent things become. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us we win in the end, but guess what? It gets worse before it gets better. And so we have to stop digging in our heels 
and shoring up our political power and everything else and instead prepare ourselves to be humbled by the Holy Spirit, to serve in His power and in His might no matter what it is that comes our way because that is what it means to trust in Jesus, to walk like Jesus. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, you and I are not Jesus. We're everybody else in this story. We are most like the Sanhedrin who are envious of Jesus and want what he has. We want the position that is his. And we think that it's easier just to see him eliminated and set aside so that we can take what God wants to freely give us when we receive him. They don't want him to be their Messiah. They want to be their Messiah. They want the power that comes with that position. Here's the irony. When you yield your life and surrender to Jesus Christ, you become a co-heir with him over the universe. So you can either kick against him and reject him and attempt to continue to grab what God would freely give to you if you would just surrender. We're like Barabbas. Guilty ones. Guilty of insurrection and murder and treason against God. Deserving of death. But Jesus takes our place, granting us the freedom that he deserves, but that we do not. We are those gullible crowds, easily stirred up by our emotions and sinful influences outside of us and lies that come from the devil himself. We're the ones who are quick to cry crucify if the circumstances are right. As we shoot our own, we cancel one another out, we plug our ears and we ignore each other. But more than that, we are quick to trust in the ones who will tickle our fancies and give us what we want. They choose Barabbas because Barabbas was the military fighter against Rome. He's the leader they wanted. They didn't want some meek and mild lamb who would be slain. No matter how miraculous his powers might have been, they wanted somebody who was going to stick it to Rome. A Jewish nationalist that they could follow after, who would make Israel great and cause every other nation to bow the knee. They didn't want the Messiah that God had. They wanted a man who reflected their desires and their wants. They wanted somebody who looked like them, acted like them, voted like them, stood with them, while rejecting the one who cries for love and sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus is the truth we need that exposes the lies that are in our life and that shines the light on our passions and exposes for us the reality that we're living in darkness. But not only are we like them, we're like Pilate, who are more concerned with our, per, our, our impermanent power, earthly positions, and so we're quick to turn to injustice when we think that our position or our power is threatened in this world. But Jesus is the true king who expects us to bow before him, who would nevertheless not turn away from the difficult path that was set before him, but instead stands firm in the will of the Father that you and I might have hope, hope for an everlasting life and for a kingdom that is greater than America, a kingdom that is greater than any other kingdom that has ever existed in this world, a kingdom that will never fail and will never fall, a kingdom that has God and Jesus Christ as the center 
whose light shines so brilliantly that the sun isn't even needed anymore. That's our hope. That's our home. That's who we represent and who we stand before. And what we must do is we must see the ways that we are bent away from that and instead come back to Jesus again and again and again in confession and in repentance and humility. Because when we bow before Jesus, he becomes what we need in the face of injustice, in the face of iniquity, in the face of hopelessness, so that we realize he is the one who is there who knows our suffering better than anybody else in the world because he's the one who suffered for us. And he walks through that suffering with us. So no matter what may come, the answer is always Jesus. It's always Jesus who suffered injustice and who suffered condemnation to secure our liberation from sin and death and to grant us an everlasting hope for all of eternity in him. Who is your hope? Who is your life? Who does your life revolve around? And how do you need to come to the Lord today confessing the ways that you have been quick to injustice and instead trust in Jesus that you might now walk in obedience to be agents of his love and his justice in the world today by going out as beacons of light and hope, willing to suffer if necessary, because Jesus suffered for you. Would you take a minute and go before the Lord in prayer and in silence and seek God's face and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your life for the ways that you, to expose the ways that you have trusted in yourself and trusted in anything or everything other than Jesus as your source of liberation and hope and ask him to reveal to you how it is that you might turn from that, and turn back to Jesus. And in a moment, I'll close this in prayer.